0: Morning, everyone. Good to be with you. We can open our Bibles today to Nehemiah chapter 13, which means that today we are finishing the book of Nehemiah. Have you guys enjoyed it? Yes. Good, good. Now, isn't it true that we like to find out how stories end? Uh, anybody ever read a book and you just skip to the end to find out what happens? Um, There's something, though, ingrained within the human heart and mind that believes that a story should end in a certain kind of way. It's why, you know, a lot of Disney movies or even all the Marvel comic movies, they all kind of have the same sort of ending, right? It's because when we hear stories, we usually like to have what we would call a good ending. But have you ever watched a movie or or read a book where the end was not at all what you were expecting it to be, right? Maybe it had a surprise twist, or, or it just ended on a real depressing, real bummer note at the end. And, and so a bad ending to an otherwise good story can actually be a little bit frustrating, and we we like it when the hero rides off into the sunset and, and all the loose ends of the story are tied up and we get that warm feeling inside that's uh, a happily ever after, right? You know what I'm talking about. Well, in the story of Nehemiah, although it's been a wonderful story of the people of God rebuilding the holy city, God coming and meeting his people and reviving their souls, it unfortunately does not end on a good note. It, in fact, you could say it doesn't have one of those happily ever after endings. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at this final chapter of Nehemiah. We're going to work our way through it verse by verse, and then we're going to come to the end of the book. And you know what happens when we come to an end of a book? We start a new book. So next week, when you come to church we're going to be starting another book and going through that book verse by verse until we come to the end of it. And that book, I told you guys last week, 1 Thessalonians. So come Sunday mornings for that. But let's get right into it. Let's see what the Lord will teach us here at the end of Nehemiah. So have your Bible open to Nehemiah 13. Let me pray, and then I'll read verses 1 through 3. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah, and all that we've learned through it. Uh, But as we come to the end of it, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to understand that the story actually doesn't end here. There is the good news that came later, which is that, God, you sent forth your son Jesus into this world to be a sacrifice for us. And we've already sung about that this morning, and we can worship you from the inside out today. But God, I pray that you would teach us something from your word today. This word is still instructive, um, even though there's, there's better news through Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So let's read verses 1 through 3. It says this. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now we're told there at the beginning of verse 1 that these things happened on that day. But what day is that? Well, it was the day that we learned about last week when Pastor Rob taught. Uh, it was the day when the people came together with musical instruments and with loud singing in order to dedicate the wall around Jerusalem to the Lord. And, and the Jews did that as one big assembly of people, kind of like what we're doing here this morning, right? Gathering together. And, and what we have seen repeatedly throughout this book is that God's people would on a regular basis gather together to read from the book of Moses. That's the first five books of our Bible. They would then worship God with joyful celebration based off of what they had heard. And and so, again, that's similar to what we're doing here today. Every time we gather, like right now, we want to open the word of God. We want to read from God's word. And upon hearing God's word, we want to be a people that will respond to what we hear in the scriptures. And so therefore, it was on that day that they found something written in the word of God, again, specifically within the books of Moses, they found written a certain command from God that said this, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 through 5, which is likely the exact place that they read from on that day. This is what it says. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loved you. So this is a rather clear command from God to his covenant people, Israel. About how, when they gathered together before the Lord as an assembly of worship, there were certain people who were not allowed to be there. The Ammonites and the Moabites were not allowed in the assembly of the Lord. And you might be thinking, well, that's not very nice. Like, that's not very welcoming. And, and, and we're going to get to the fact that we are, these are commands for Israel. We're under a new covenant, and so don't nobody fret here this morning that you're not allowed in this place, right? If you're from, if you know your descendant goes all the way back to Moab or Ammon, then you're good. You're, you can be here. But, but was God having some sort of prejudice toward the Moabites or the Ammonites, and listen, with 28 more verses in front of us this morning, we can't go into all the history between the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Israelites, but let's just say these people usually didn't get along. And remember, this is God's command to Israel, his covenant nation. But, but listen, even the, way, even the way that these people started out the, the Moabites and the Ammonites. It goes back to a, a story where two daughters got their dad drunk in a cave and then slept with him, and both daughters got pregnant. And then the sons that were born became the fathers of these two nations. And you thought your family was messed up, <laughs> right? <laughs> but... but Look, that, that's just the start of these people. You could go all through the Bible and find out all the terrible things that happened between these people. And at a later point, it was the king of Moab that hired a prophet named Balaam to pronounce a curse over Israel as they were coming out of Egypt and into the promised land. And it's a really fascinating story. I recommend reading it if you haven't. It's Numbers chapter 22 to 24 What God does is he ends up uh, pronouncing blessings over Israel through Balaam, and and the guy's trying as hard as he can to curse Israel, and he just can't. And, And in this story, God miraculously makes a donkey speak with intelligible language. So go check that one out. But here's the thing. This is what I want to draw from these first few verses of Nehemiah chapter 13. And we could go into all the reasons for why the Ammonites and the Moabites weren't allowed into the assembly of God. And, and, And I'll just tell you real quickly, the primary reason is because they worship false gods. And it was these people throughout Israel's history who would often turn the Israelites away from God and into idolatry. Paul says in the New Testament, bad company corrupts good morals. And so sometimes separating from sin means separating from certain people who are always wanting to lead you into sin. But again, if we looked at all the reasons for why God would make such a command, what I want us to see is, did you see the response of these people when they found this command written in the law? They obeyed it. Verse 3 says, As soon as the people heard the law, They separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, this is what we've been talking about quite a bit recently, which is this idea of repentance. It's when you discover from the word of God a certain truth. And you look at your current life situation and you think to yourself, hmm, you know, something's not really matching up here. And so would we be like Israel? And would we take the active and the necessary steps to bring change into our lives through the power of God so that our lives would align more and more with what we read in his word. You see, every time we open this book, we don't just want to hear it, we want to do it. We want to hear the word, we want to realize the places where there's a disconnect, and then we want to ask for God's help in order that we would obey God in his word. Now, here's what we're going to see now in the following verses of this chapter. We'll see that the people of God continued to struggle with disobedience. And is anybody else in that camp? Yeah, thanks. You didn't have to raise your hand, but mine was up. <laughs> the, it's the holy people over here. I saw more hands over here. Next Sunday, if you're, if you're one of the holy ones, come sit over here, right? We all struggle with obedience to the Lord. And, and in fact, these are the areas where we saw in chapter 10 the people saying, We won't do these things anymore. They had made a vow of repentance in these certain areas, saying that, that we're not going to sin against God in this way anymore. And, and maybe you remember what those areas were because you yourself heard that teaching from Nehemiah chapter 10 and you said, there's a disconnect, and you had your own repentance over those things. But guess what? There's probably a good chance that even then, now that we're in chapter 13, three weeks later, that you've, you've fallen back into some of those areas. And so these areas that they mentioned were all the areas that historically they had disobeyed God. And they, these, are the, these were the, just the trouble places. It had to do with their marriages and sex it had to do with money and generosity. It had to do with work and rest. They, they said even to God, God, if we obey you in these areas, God bless us. And if we disobey you in these areas, curse us. They also said, we will not forsake the house of the Lord. So, so let's check in and see how they're doing in verses 4 through 14, and and I want us to notice that there's a little contradiction to that vow that they had made. It says in verse 4, now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this, I was, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant, Hanan the son of Zaccur, Zahker- son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So in the last word, this is what the people said. We will not neglect the house of God. So what happened? Well, what we saw in those verses that we just read that this great spiritual leader, Nehemiah, that we've been studying about, he, he made a return trip to Persia or to Babylon for King Artaxerxes. If you remember how the book started out, it was Nehemiah that worked as a cupbearer to the king, and so he brought wine before the king every day. But he had asked leave of the king to go back to Jerusalem to restore and to rebuild it. And, and so I imagine that the king was missing his favorite sommelier and having. Sent him away with all the provisions and all the favor that he needed. I think the king expected that Nehemiah would not shirk his responsibility of being cupbearer to the king. And so Nehemiah was a leader of integrity. The king said, How long are you going to be gone for? And he kept his word. And so Nehemiah came back to the king, and for a time he worked again for Artaxerxes. But again, after some time, Nehemiah to Israel, to his people. Therefore, he asked leave of the king. Commentators estimate that Nehemiah could have been gone upwards to 12 years. So what did he find when he came back to Jerusalem? The place that he had so tirelessly worked to rebuild and restore. The place where 12 years ago he had last left it being spiritually revived by God. What did he find when he came back to Jerusalem? Well, he, he found that while the cat is away, the mice will play. See, one of the priests who had been left in charge, Eliashib, who had been appointed to oversee the chambers of the house of God, he'd not done his job. But he did evil by making living quarters out of one of the storerooms of the temple. He would turn the temple into an Airbnb. Airbnb. He got rid of all the things that were supposed to be used in worship of God, and instead he let one of his relatives move in to make it his home. And did you notice who that relative was? Tobiah. Tobiah the Ammonite. No Ammonite should ever enter the assembly of God, right? And if you guys forget who Tobiah was, or you weren't here when we studied chapters 4, 5, and 6. This is the guy who was the enemy of Israel, who was mocking the work of the rebuilding of the wall. He's the guy who said, if a fox goes up on that wall, it's going to break down. He's the guy who was sending open letters against Nehemiah, telling him that he was conspiring against the king. This is the man that Nehemiah pronounced these words. He said, "There will be no heritage, no rights, and no memorial in Jerusalem for Tobiah and Sanballat." And here he is kicking it in the house of God, replacing the articles of worship with his own personal belongings. Like my goodness! But but you saw what Nehemiah did, right? Verse eight, and I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I I would have loved to just see the picture of Tobiah walking. Why is my stuff all out here? What's this about? Don't you love this guy, Nehemiah? You know, when Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem, everyone sat up straight. He put people in their places. He was a man of authority. He was a man of zeal. He was a man of righteousness. When God was being mocked, zeal for the house of the Lord consumed him, and Nehemiah had a righteous anger, and so he chucked Tobias' furniture out of the temple. He threw his furniture out and he restored proper worship back to the temple. And not only that, he appointed new leadership in place who would be considered reliable and faithful. He found leaders and assistants who would actually do their job of taking the tithe of the storehouses to the Levites just as God had commanded his people to do. And so Nehemiah came in and he put people in their places and he said, fix this now. Does this sound like anyone else you've ever heard of in the Bible before? But I wonder if hearing this, you're thinking that, you know, Nehemiah needs to chill out a little bit. It's kind of a little bit intense here. But what about Jesus? You know, when Jesus came, he also went into the temple twice, and he cleansed it. Let's read from John chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. We're going to see Jesus also went into the temple and threw some furniture around. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem... In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Can you just imagine Jesus coming in with a whip into the temple? But right after Jesus cleansed the temple, he's recorded saying this in John chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, for all of us here this morning who are disciples of Jesus... Hopefully, you're hearing this, and you're able to understand that what we're reading in Nehemiah chapter 13 was in the old covenants, and and the things like the no Ammonite, no Moabites in the assembly, these are old covenant commands to God's covenant people, Israel, And, and when God had a covenant with Israel, where did God choose to dwell? In a temple. Prior to that, in a tabernacle. But God no longer dwells in a temple made with hands. See, both Nehemiah and Jesus were zealous to go in and cleanse anything from the Jerusalem temple that didn't belong there, because at that time, that was God's house. That's where God chose to dwell, and it was to be kept holy. So zeal for God's house consumed them, and they both displayed a righteous anger. See, no idol-worshipping Ammonite was going to make an Airbnb out of God's house. God doesn't dwell, though, in temples, in buildings anymore, does he? Friends, where does God dwell? In us. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So the question for us here today is, do you have zeal for the place where God dwells? Are you serious about the fact that God has chosen for his spirit to dwell in you? You are his holy residence. And if the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then I think the Holy Spirit is going to be like Nehemiah, where he's going to want to get rid of anything that's in you that doesn't belong there. Anything that is not for worship, anything that is in partnership with the enemy, anything that grieves the Spirit, you should better expect that the Holy Spirit's going to chuck it out of your life because you are God's temple. And so the people clearly did not obey God in the things that he said, and they didn't follow through on the things that they had vowed to do. They said, we will not neglect the house of God. Now, what what else did they say they were going to do? Do you remember in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31, how they said they would keep the Sabbath that they would not buy or sell or trade with anyone on the Sabbath, but that they would keep it holy and that it would be a day of rest just as God had commanded. Well, let's check in on them again and see how things are going. Starting at verse 15, we're going to read down to verse 22. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. And also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark... If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So when Nehemiah, again, came back from Jerusalem, he saw how... The Sabbath was also not being kept. You know, God had set a pattern for work and rest. He worked for six days and he rested on the seventh. And we're not going to dive in this morning as to whether Christians under the new covenant should honor the Sabbath, uh, whether we should take Saturday as a day of rest or anything like that. But this is what I am going to say about all of that, is that if you're not resting, it's probably a reflection of your trust in God. And and I'm preaching to the choir here, like I know for myself. This is an area that we all need to consider, I think, is finding rest because we live in a very busy and hurried world. And and so I I don't know what you need, uh, whether maybe you need to work more or maybe you need to rest more. Because there's a right balance for both, right? You can go back and listen to the teaching I did on Nehemiah chapter 10, and be reminded of why work and rest are important. But let me just give you a simple reminder, is that if you don't have a balance of work and rest in your life, you're not going to flourish in life. If life becomes all about working for more and more unsatisfying gain, you're not going to flourish. But on the converse side, if life becomes idle with no purpose found because you're not putting your hands to any sort of good, hard work, you're also not going to flourish. There needs to be a balance of both. And for God, it just seemed to be a six to one ratio. And we don't need to have it be exact, but we need to consider that before our God. Now, what Nehemiah saw was certainly not what God had. It was, in fact, it was exactly what brought the chastisement of the Lord upon Israel. It is what had the people taken out of the land and put into Babylon for 70 years is that they dishonored the Sabbath and and the land needed its rest. So God said, you're not gonna give the land rest? Then I'm gonna take you out of the land. And he took them out of the land. And here they are coming back in, doing business again. And so what did he do? He got things back into order. He shut the gates on Friday before sundown, just before the Sabbath started. And for the few first weeks, people came and they camped outside the wall in order to do business. It's it's kind of like this. Have you, have you ever gone to Chick-fil-A on a Sunday and forgot that they're closed? Right? That that's sort of what it like. <laughs> that's sort of what it's like. You get there, you're like, God oh, man! Right? The, the people of Tyre, they lived on the, on the coast, and so they're bringing their fish to sell, and they're like, why are the gates closed? And so they camped there, and they tried setting up shop around the gates and, and around the walls. And so did you see, though, what Nehemiah said in verse 21? But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Who likes this guy, Nehemiah? He's... he's Good. So, so Nehemiah has restored the house of God, the temple. He has reestablished the Sabbath. Now we're going to see him correct one final thing that he saw in the people when he returned to Jerusalem. And if you remember the areas that we talked about in Nehemiah chapter 10, these ways that they had vowed to honor the Lord, it leaves one more area for us. He saw how they were disobeying God again in their marriages, So verse 23 to 31, this is what we read. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. Whew. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there is no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the honorite. Remember that guy? Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. So things get pretty intense here at the end, don't they? Nehemiah sees how the people had been intermarrying with foreign women, and again, we don't Have the time to go into the detail of why God commanded Israel not to intermarry with pagan Gentiles. But if you want to go back again, listen to Nehemiah chapter 10, or you can do your own study and go through all the history of Israel and see how many of the terrible downfalls that they had was because of idolatry that often came through mixed marriages. Just look at King Solomon's life, he had 700 wives remember that's 699 too many and nehemiah reminded the people how that went for him he essentially saying you think you're this special case don't you 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 think that you can marry someone who doesn't share your same beliefs about god look at solomon and learn did not solomon king of israel sin on account of such women Among the many nations there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. The man who had all the wisdom that he could ask for. People traveled to see the wisdom of Solomon and yet he had no wisdom when it came to these relationships. He did not obey God in these areas. And a lot of times what we think or at least just the way that we act is that we think that we have sort of this special agreement with God. We act in thinking this way where, where you know, we say, God, I, I know what you say about sex and marriage in your word. But this is a little area of my life that, you know, I'll be okay with. I, I can handle this. And, and we start thinking, you know, well, it's, it's not hurting Me and it's not hurting anyone else. I'll I'll have this relationship. I'll I'll do this little sexual act, and it will all work out. Everything's gonna be fine. And I'm sure that's exactly what the people were thinking that that when they married these foreign women, this isn't gonna affect anyone else but me. Oh yeah. Twelve years later. Half the children didn't speak the Hebrew language of Judah, but only spoke the language of Ashdod. Listen to me. I will tell you one area where your marriage sin and your sexual sin will have an effect on your children. So we need to stop this silly pretending like Sin doesn't have an effect on anyone else but you. Why do we think Solomon dealt with sexual sin and marriage sin in his life? Look at his dad, David. And and I'm not speaking of some sort of generational curse because look, I, I had four dads by the time I was 14 and I'm happily married to my wife of 10 years with three beautiful children. And, and if you come from a past of sexual brokenness, God can redeem. God can redeem. He can give you the power and the ability to live a life that is pleasing to God in your marriage and in your sexual life. But Nehemiah got pretty intense about this issue. He beat some of the people. He pulled out their hair. He, he chased people out of town. <laughs> So, uh, by the way, I, I don't take this as a prescription for pastoral ministry, okay? So, if you're dealing with some sort of sexual sin or marriage sin, you can come talk to any one of our pastors, and we promise not to pull your hair out, okay? <laughs> good, good. But, but here's what I am going to say, because if we go to the new covenant, if we go to what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 through 21, he's writing to the church in Corinth who had become arrogant about their sexual sin, they had that whole idea and in actions that were fine. Like God, God doesn't care that we that this guy's sleeping with his stepmom. You're like what? So when Paul writes to Corinth in chapter four, verse eighteen through twenty-one, he says, "Some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you." But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Friends, as we end today, what do we need? to become more obedient to God in the things that he has commanded us in his word? Do you need somebody to get rough with you? Because sometimes I know for me, I need a a good beating, right? I I need somebody who loves me and loves Jesus who's gonna come up into my face and say, Daniel, stop it. But then I also need... Those times when somebody's going to come up and they're going to hug me and tell me, "Oh, God is so gracious, and this is not fit for a child of God, and you can change, and God's grace can help you change. I, I know that in my life, both have worked, and the Lord uses both of these things, and Paul used that, Nehemiah used that, but but here's what I'm going to say, is I'm going to say, whatever the Lord needs for you to change, you need to change. You need to change. We need to be more like our God. Our lives need to match more with what God has revealed in his word. So why, though, does Nehemiah end this way? Why does it end with the people falling falling back into disobedience? Why is there this cycle throughout the Old Testament where the stories all seem to end on this low note, just when you thought that they were going to get it right, they get it wrong and end up back in sin? And why do we often find ourselves in that same place? We come to church, you know, things are good, and I'm close to Jesus, and then I go, Monday I'm feeling good, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Right, And it's like we get in that cycle of sin and repentance and restoration. Why is that? And, and are we left to sort of this sad story of repeated failure again and again and again? Listen, I'm going to tell you why. Why Nehemiah ends this way in chapter 13 is because this is not the end of the story. Look. There's more Bible after this. <laughs> See, what the Old Testament does and what this book has done is it's brought us to this not so good ending where what we realize is our desperate need for a Savior where we realize that we need somebody to redeem us from this curse of sin. We need God to intervene because I've never been able to obey God. And the law has only shown me again and again how sinful I really am and has revealed to me more and more my need for a savior. The law is a curse, friends, only to reveal the curse of sin, death, and judgment, but God, but God. Can I share with you what I think might be one of the most important words in all of Nehemiah? The words are found in this chapter at the end of verse 2. This is what it says, Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. When the people of God said, if we obey you, bless us. They also said, if we disobey you, curse us. And God said, I've got something better. How about I turn the curse into a blessing? I will place the curse of sin on my only begotten son, Jesus Christ, because cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree, and therefore I will send my only beloved son, born of a virgin, born under the law, born in order to fulfill the law and fulfill all of its righteous requirements because you've never been able to, and only he has. And then he will go down... uh, He will go to the cross. He will lay his life down. He will be lifted up on a cross and die for all sins. That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And that the curse of sin would be done with. Amen? Amen. 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 Thank God the story doesn't end with Nehemiah. And thank God, there is more in our Bible. and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some promises over you who are hopefully new covenant people, who have believed and received the grace of God through faith, which is a gift of God, not anything that you have ever done or anything you've ever not done, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the greater Nehemiah. So let me read Romans chapter 3, verse 19 through 24. Now, we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. Nehemiah has been telling this about it, testifying this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, Israelite, Ammonite, Moabite, Californian. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Galatians three ten through 14, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. Moabites the Ammonites the Californians so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith and this is what we've been saying friends Acts 13 38 through 39 therefore my friends I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you I'm proclaiming it to you right now you never could obey God could you That's why you need the forgiveness of a savior. And Jesus came to do that. That's why he died on a cross. That's why he rose from the dead. And when you believe in him, you become his temple. And the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead gives you the enabling power to be able to live out in obedience to God. For by grace you have been saved. It's not of any works that you have done. It is a gift from God. And the same grace that saves you and forgives you of your sins is the same grace that enables you to live in obedience to God. 1 Peter 2, 24. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Amen? Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word and this truth that has been spoken over us. And I believe that the law has been declared. And the law brings a conscious awareness of sin. And if there's anyone in here who's been made conscious of their sin this morning, here right now, Do you know that there is a savior? His name is Jesus. And he's calling you to come to himself. He says, to you come to me? All who are weary and heavy laden, burdened down with a heavy load, I will give rest for your soul because we tirelessly try to live our own lives. But God, you have called us so that we can die to sin and live to righteousness by your power. And if there's anyone who senses this morning these two things, one, you've recognized this morning that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And you've heard this morning that there is only one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ, and Nehemiah longed to see him. And he's been declared to you today, and if today you believe I am a sinner in need of salvation, and you've heard that Jesus can save you today, will you believe? Will you say I receive you by faith? Is there anyone in here this morning? You could just raise your hand up over your head, and I can know to pray over you. I see you right over there. I see you right over there, brother. I see you right back there, over here. Praise God. Praise God. I see you right back there, man. Yeah. If you've raised your hand, just pray the simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I believe that I am a sinner and that I cannot obey you no matter how hard I try. But God, thank you that I'm saved by you, Jesus, by your works, that you have died on a cross for my sins and has given me the free gift of eternal life. I believe it. And I receive it. Now help me to live in your grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, you are freed from the law of sin and death. And you've been given the life and the peace that comes through the spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, this morning we're going to close in a song of worship. It's one that we already sang this morning and it just testifies of of the wonderful mercy of god that we've heard about this morning so let's sing it out together with loud voices uh, praising our our god and savior jesus christ let's do it